If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, September the 16th of 2020, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. Joining me via Zoom from his home slash elementary school classroom slash college classroom is my colleague, Dr. Lanhe Chen. Lonnie Chen is the Hoover Institution's David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow in American Public Policy Studies, and he's the Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in Stanford's Public Policy Program. In 2012, Lonnie Chen was Policy Director for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. In 2016, he was an advisor for the presidential campaign of Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Lonnie, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Appreciate it. So I'm actually talking to you from South Carolina, which I think in 2012 had mixed emotions for you. Not a good February for Mitt Romney, but a good November here. Uh, when you do a campaign from start to finish, Lonhe, do you remember the primaries or is it all about the general? Yeah, I mean, you remember the primaries. You definitely remember moments in the primary. Um, you know, I think particularly when you have a, a, a pretty heavily contested primary like we did in 2012 or even the 2016 primary that I was a part of with uh, with Marco Rubio, uh, you remember that. But, you know, the general election brings its own set of challenges, and it's such a huge apparatus that develops when you get into a general election uh, that it tends to consume everything else. So, uh, you know, there are many memories I have from South Carolina, actually, mostly tied to the primary, because that's where we spent all our time in South Carolina was around the primary. Right. Um, but certainly, you know, as we move toward the, the fall, um, you know, you, you build up a lot of memories and, and you put a lot of miles on the car, as it were. Sure. And I'm actually Mount Pleasant outside of Charleston, Lottie, which oh, was yeah. Romney country in 2012. So this yeah. area was good to you. But um, so let's uh, get on to topic today. It's been a curious 2020, to say the least. Uh, our lives have all been disrupted by a pandemic. Uh, as Californians, we've been affected by fires and the terrible air quality resulted from that. A lightning bolt literally struck the Hoover Tower a couple weeks ago. You can still see the damage on it um, to this day. And in September, Lonhe, the Hoover Institution suffered a new kind of distinction. We've become a member of cancel culture. And what I'm referring to is uh, this past weekend, YouTube, which is owned by Google, removed a Hoover Institution video. It was the June 23rd edition of Uncommon Knowledge, the title of which was Scott Atlas and the Efficacy of Lockdowns. In it, uh, Scott, who is a Hoover Institution senior fellow as well as an MD, he's a neuroradiologist, um, he was commenting on uh, public health issues and expressing his belief that the pandemic lockdowns might have been more good than bad. Uh, since then, Scott Atlas has become um, you know, rather famous across the country. He was appointed uh, by President Trump as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. YouTube Blonde, for some reason this weekend, saw fit to remove the interview uh, with Dr. Atlas, even though it was some three and a half months ago, uh, for allegedly, allegedly violating its terms of service. So, Lonnie, the question is, why did YouTube do this? Well, I mean, we, we can get into any number of different angles here. Certainly, the, the reason they did it, I think, has a lot less to do with the formal explanation than with the reality that uh, in many situations, these large social media platforms have uh, entered the business of determining what they like and what they don't like on their platforms. They have become 
less of a platform, unfortunately, in many situations, and more of an arbiter of right and wrong. And in this particular situation, you know, it's a prime example of that. You have um, someone who has been uh, well regarded, by the way, not not expressing things that everyone agrees with or that I agree with all the time, um, but generally well regarded in terms of being able to provide analysis and thinking around public health issues and issues relating to COVID-19 and, and the lockdowns were certainly part of that. Um, you, ha- you had a decision by Google, uh, you know, YouTube, Google, to essentially remove that video because of a, um, you know, a statement that was, was in dispute and controversy, essentially relating to um, how kids could or could not transmit COVID-19. Now, you know, Google's point will be this is a disputed matter. The problem with that argument is that if you look on the YouTube platform right now, mm-hmm. you will see plenty of videos espousing uh, positions that are as in question or as in dispute, if not more in dispute. And I'll just provide one example, Bill. The, the um, YouTube folks cite the World Health Organization as a definitive resource in terms of what is right and wrong when we think about COVID-19. Now, we, well, I hope we'll talk about the WHO a little bit, but I like to the, 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 um, the reality is if you look right now, you will see still on YouTube a video from the World Health Organization arguing that masks are not useful in stemming the spread of COVID-19. This is in direct contravention to the guidance given by many public health authorities in the U.S., including the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And yet that video, which propagates the idea that masks are not useful in stemming the tide of COVID-19, is still up on YouTube. It has not been removed. It is easily accessible. And it is made available to provide a point of view from the WHO, a point of view, by the way, which they may have subsequently dispensed with, but still a point of view they held quite strongly at some point, that video is still there for everyone to see. Why is that video still there and has not been taken down, has not been, the WHO has not been forced to take that down, yet the, the video that, that included Scott Atlas was summarily removed for what one would argue, if one wanted to argue against that video, are, are, are reasons that just as similarly ought to force them to take down the WHO's video. So my my point is there's a little bit of hypocrisy going on here, but there's clearly a situation we've entered into where these platforms have decided that they are more than just neutral platforms. They are in fact arbiters of what is right and wrong. Right, now I'm gonna get to the neutrality question because you did a a Hoover Capital conversation with uh, Josh Hawley, the uh, Minnesota Senator, the Missouri Senator, uh, who's been all over this, uh, Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Uh, But first, Lonnie, let's talk a bit about the WHO. Uh, I know you have some very strong opinions about the Director General, um, but what does it say about an organization, the World Health Organization, which sent a delegation to China in January and said that there is, quote, no clear evidence of human to human transmission? Well, you know, the WHO is one of those organizations that has um, discredited itself, quite frankly, over and over and over again, over, over these many months of the pandemic. Now, to be clear, the WHO has done some very laudable things in its recent past. In fact, if you look at the work that they've done on helping to eradicate polio, distributing vaccines worldwide, promoting, um, you know, a, a, an end to communicable diseases, Uh, for which we have vaccines. I mean, these are all very, very good efforts. 
the WHO also, incidentally, was quite effective in its response to uh, the last major respiratory disease outbreak we had, which was the SARS uh, virus that right. spread through Asia in uh, the early 2000s. With respect to COVID-19, however, the WHO has not performed admirably. And it, its failure to perform admirably comes from what I have argued is a tendency to be far too interested in pleasing the People's Republic of China. Right. And that is in part because the current leader, Dr. Tedros uh, of the WHO, has received the support of the Chinese government and of Chinese officials in his candidacy to be the director general of the group. And, and what that means, in essence, is that the WHO has been far too deferential. In some cases, it has outright parroted the PRC's talking points. And, and you note this uh, delegation that was sent to China on, on behalf of the WHO to look at the situation very early on in January with respect to COVID-19 right. and essentially repeated the Chinese government's statement that the virus could not be transmitted from human to human, which we now know obviously to be totally untrue. Yes. And yet the WHO doubled down on that. It, it, it further lauded and supported and glorified in a lot of ways China's response to COVID-19 all while criticizing, of course, the United States. And so in my mind, the WHO, and, and there are a whole other re, you know, host of things relating to COVID-19 the WHO has done that in my mind are very questionable, but certainly with respect to uh, how they have handled the information flow from the PRC and the way in which they have been so deferential to the, to the People's Republic of China is a cause for major concern for this international organization. Now, James Friedman wrote a very good column on this in the Wall Street Journal the other day. You were quoted, and I think he picked up one of your tweets in it, and he paints a scenario that I think the best word to describe it is, it's dirty. Uh, Tedros um, is a candidate uh, for the WHO. Uh, China pours billions of dollars into Ethiopia. Uh, Tedros uh, wins the WHO election. He soon travels to Beijing, and when he's there, Lonnie, he says these words, quote, we can all learn something from China. What, what do you think he was saying? We can all learn something from China. Well, I, I, I think it was a concerted effort on his part to please his uh, Chinese benefactors uh, at the time. And, and I, look, I don't think there's any uh, surprise that these linkages exist. Uh, what I like to say is people can draw their own conclusions about what Tedros's motivations are. Uh, I'll add one more wrinkle to this, which is that Tedros has repeatedly refused to allow or even consider, consider allowing the input and participation of Taiwan. Right. And Taiwan, of course, has been a global example of how to deal well with COVID-19. They've had very few cases. Uh, they have had very little, if any, community spread and certainly haven't had it in some time. Uh, their response to COVID-19 is nothing short of exemplary. So I would think that an organization like the WHO would say, you know what, we've got something to learn in the science and the execution from how Taiwan has done this. And yet the WHO has repeatedly refused to include and incorporate Taiwan in any of its conversations of import and note. Why is that? Well, quite simply, China considers Taiwan a renegade province. This goes back to a geopolitical fight that happened uh, that, that, that goes back many, many decades, and it goes back to the Chinese Civil War. And uh, Tedros has, has not only refused to allow Taiwan to participate, but has actually accused Taiwanese officials of trying to smear him. Uh, which is interesting because there's no actual evidence that anyone from Taiwan did anything in a concerted way to smear him or to attack him. Suffice it to say that the 
unwillingness of the WHO to entertain the participation of the Taiwanese has as much to do with a desire to please China as anything else. So that is another major proof point of the WHO's willingness to, uh, to, to bow to Beijing's demands. So you probably noticed, Lon He, there's a presidential election coming up in 48 days, I believe. Since I hadn't heard. You spend hours every day talking about it. <laughs> uh, I'd like you to uh, give me two scenarios here, a scenario in which Donald Trump is reelected and a scenario in which Joe Biden is elected and how that pertains to the U.S. involvement with WHO. Well, I think you'll see two very different pathways. Uh, President Trump has already uh, indicated that he intends to withdraw the U.S. from the World Health Organization, that he intends to figure out a way to redirect that money to other noble and worthy public health causes that he would like to look into. This is an idea that I have pushed, potentially an alternative to the WHO that would be built with countries who value the rule of law, understand the importance of democratic participation, and want to have transparency and accountability for how they spend member money. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the, the Trump approach, which is one that, uh, you know, fundamentally, I think, is, is moving in the right direction. Um, Biden has said he will, he will ensure the U.S. stays within the WHO. He has not said a whole lot about accountability. He has not said a whole lot about Tedros specifically. And so I do think that you're going to see a return to the status quo ex ante if Joe Biden is elected, at least with respect to the WHO. We could talk about, you know, more broadly, the U.S.-China relationship, but certainly on the WHO issue, uh, I think what you will see from a Biden administration is a more traditional stance. And by the way, by traditional, I mean both Republicans and Democrats in terms of not holding the WHO to account for all the ways in which I think it has failed public health and failed people around the world. And how would you describe the Trump position, Lonnie? Is it populist? Is it more mainstream conservative? How would, how would you liken it? I wouldn't say it's mainstream conservative. I would, I would say in this regard, the Trump position is very consistent with where the president is uh, in terms of his skepticism of multilateral organizations generally. The president has been skeptical of the UN Human Rights Council, which has had a strong anti-Israel bias. He's been uh, very strong in speaking out against UNESCO, which has advanced, which is the UN Economic and Social Council, which has advanced some uh, policy prescriptions that are that are antithetical to what a lot of U.S. conservatives believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has uh, spoken up against the WHO. So I, I think his point of view is consistent with a skepticism of multilateralism and a desire to fashion new institutions that will be consistent with American values. So I I hesitate to call it populist or anything else. I think it's very uniquely Trumpian. But in that sense, I think it satisfies a a concern that that people like I have had about the WHO and what it's doing. Okay, let's get back to Hoover and the canceled video and uh, social media neutrality or lack thereof and your conversation with Senator Hawley. Uh, Lonnie, I thought you had a very brilliant tweet earlier this week. Uh, Lonnie's Twitter feed, by the way, is at Lonnie Chen. That's L-E-N-H-E-E-C-H-E-N at Lonnie Chen. And you tweeted very simply but succinctly that if the whole, if the entire goal of this is to make this go away, why do you do this? You just draw attention to the video by killing it. Yeah. I, I really don't understand uh, that. And if anything, it, it does indicate and suggest that, uh, you know, there's an agenda there that, right. that, that Google and YouTube have a particular agenda. You know, so you mentioned the conversation I had with Josh Hawley, which if you haven't seen it, um, will be available at the Hoover Institution's website at hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. I encourage you to, to take a look at it. Um, I assume it'll actually also be available on YouTube, maybe, uh, if they don't remove it. So the the conversation I had with Senator Hawley was was really great. He was terrific. And, and you know, those of you who follow him know that he is 
um, he has been probably the leading proponent of reform of how the federal government regulates uh, social media platforms. And it is precisely this issue of viewpoint neutrality that has given the tech companies a free pass for these last many years. You mentioned Section 230. Section 230 uh, of the Communications Decency Act is what has given social media providers the ability to operate in an unfettered way because the notion was that they would be viewpoint neutral. That has not been the case. Right. And, and, and so uh, Holly and I talk about some of the efforts at reform that he's leading and, and his hope that actually they might secure some bipartisan support. Right. So Section 230 is the, also known as the quote-unquote 26 words that created the internet, Lonhi. Uh, let me read you those 26 words. Quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by, any, by another information content provider. It also allows those companies to voluntarily take actions in quote-unquote good faith to moderate content. So Senator Hawley, um, he has a bill. His bill would remove automatic immunity for big tech companies uh, under Section 230 unless they submit to an external audit that proves their algorithms and content removal practices are politically neutral. How would he go about doing that, Lonnie? Well, I mean, the fundamental point here that I think Senator Hawley wanted to get at was if somebody is the uh, target of activity by a social media company right. for the removal of content. What this would essentially do is give the individual who's been aggrieved a, an opportunity at law to remedy that, to essentially sue the social media provider uh, at law to, uh, to essentially tell them, look, you, you, you can't do this. You have, you have created a, a wrong by removing information that should not have been removed. And what inhibits that now is an immunity shield that was created by Section 230. By the way, when Section 230 was first written, as you note, note properly back in 1996, uh, it was important because the internet wasn't uh, what it is today. And right. the internet would not have grown to what it is today were it not for that. But to have a regulatory regime from that long ago to govern a industry and a technology that has uh, evolved by leaps and bounds since then is ludicrous. We need an updated regulatory structure. And that's something that, that Josh Hawley and others have been at the forefront of arguing for. I don't know if you saw it, Lonnie, but uh, the president made an appointment to the FCC today. Did you catch that? I saw it. I, I don't, I don't uh, recall who he named and what the situation was, but I did see that. Yeah. It's interesting. It's Nathan Simington. He's a senior advisor at the Commerce Department's National Telecommunications and Information Administration, Lonnie, and he was involved in the writing of Trump's executive order pertaining to Section 230. So he is viewed as something of a social media hawk. Well, and I think it reflects an understanding, certainly amongst many conservatives. Uh, and, and, you know, here's the thing, Bill, this is not a partisan issue. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of Democrats who believe that how social media is looked at needs to be examined. But the, the basic point is this. If you are not able to have regulators who understand the need for a modernization of the structure and the challenges created by not holding platforms like Google and Facebook to account for their failure to be viewpoint neutral, that is a major problem because what you've now allowed for is the creation of media organizations that are able to propagate their own agendas under the guise of simply providing a platform that will not take positions on what content is right and what content is wrong. Did you and the good senator talk at all about Facebook and uh, Mark Zuckerberg's decisions to attach labels to content and not to run political ads in the last week of the election? 
We, we didn't get into that specifically. Uh, you know, we, we did talk about the overwhelming power that Facebook and Google have in, in this space uh, to a lesser degree, uh, Senator Hawley noted Twitter, but you know, it is, it is the case that these various social media platforms are trying very hard to avoid changes in the federal regulatory structure. Mm -hmm. Facebook created its own council that would help them arbitrate some of these questions relating to speech on, on the platform. You've seen Twitter essentially do the same calling for a ban on, on uh, certain kinds of political advertising, particularly during the end of the campaign. Um, the, the, the problem is that I think the case these social media companies are making is less and less compelling the longer it goes on and the clearer it becomes that the environment has changed. And I think they have to recognize that. And, and you know, look, if they can come up with other ideas of ways that they can be more responsible participants in the debate, I think people would welcome that. But in the absence of that, I do think that some action is probably needed. Right. So what Facebook has proposed, Lonhi, is or is going to do is it's called they call it an informational label. And what it does, it seeks to de delegitimize the outcome for the election or discuss the legitimacy of voting methods, for example, by claiming that lawful methods of voting would lead to fraud. Uh, twice they've taken down Trump uh, post regarding mail-in voting integrity. This raises some questions, though, Lonhi. First of all, who decides uh, what uh, is deserving a label? And if ultimately you're trying to just sort of you know, keep Washington happy and keep the federal government off your back. Aren't you, Lonnie, in some way going to have to, in the back of your mind, start counting uh, who you are censoring? In other words, oh gosh, I've nailed six Republicans. I better go get some Democrats now to, to kind of show it's balanced. Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, But the other issue, Bill, is you're getting farther and farther away from what Section 230 said, right? right. Because Section 230 said that essentially these uh, platforms would be platforms and they wouldn't have a relationship with the publisher or speaker of information uh, provided by, by somebody else, right? And now what you're saying is, well, we're going to be in the business of figuring out what's right and wrong. Now, now Facebook has tried to create a separate uh, organization that would do this. They've tried to put some of this outside of, of you know, the, the, the company, the, the corporate entity, uh, I think that's a good idea. But the problem then is you're right. You're going to start trying to think, well, if we've said that there are two or three things a Republican or a conservative has said that aren't allowable, do we not need to go hunting for things that a liberal has said that are not allowable? Or are we just going to keep saying things that conservatives or, or that Trump says are, are not permissible? And, and then it does call into question how these things happen. And, and by the way, there's a broader question about the algorithms that are used. Some of this is automated. Um, you know, what are those algorithms like? And can we get some more visibility into all of that? Right. So if I could get you in a room with Zuckerberg, if I could get you in a room with uh, the Google gods of Alphabet Lanhi, what would you tell them? What would you recommend to them? Well, I would say this. First of all, the nature of social media regulation is changing whether they like it or not. And, and that has to do with the realities of how pervasive social media is now but also the recognition that the existing regulatory structure is outdated and outmoded. So I think some change is, is coming. The second thing I would say is, great that you're coming up with ways of self-regulating, but to the extent that those ways of self-regulating still put you in the business of essentially determining the, um, the rightness or wrongness of certain points of view, I think that's a problem. And I think people will see it as a problem and the third thing I would say is transparency can be your friend. Being able to provide uh, insights to us about how things are or are not done 
that is helpful. I think some of the challenge that's been created is that the social media platforms have simply been opaque or deeply secretive about how they make decisions on what is up and what is down. And in the absence of that specificity or understanding, a government will fill in the blanks. Now, I am not someone who believes, for example, that these need to be treated like public utilities or that we need to come in and regulate them uh, in, in, in that way. But I do believe that there is a significant strain of thinking on the left and a little bit on the right that will, will probably be a lot more heavy-handed than, than I would be comfortable with and, and that these companies would be comfortable with. So the more they're able to do on their own, the better. I think transparency is a great concept, Lonnie, and I'd love to see it retired from the political language for a little while. Um, your, your friend, uh, Dr. Tedros, went to China uh, back in uh, early this year, and he praised China for their leaders for transparency. Yeah. And when's the election, mark my words, at some point on election night or soon thereafter, he will promise to have the most transparent administration in America. They all do. And it never works out. So they all do. I don't know about you. I'm a little tired of that word. But uh, uh, not to get too far off topic uh, with uh, but back to your conversation with Holly, did he talk at all about Oracle and TikTok? We did talk a little bit about that, and, and, and what he expressed was deep concern about, about TikTok, its business model, about the amount of information that TikTok acquires from its users and, and the amount of keystroke logging, for example, that goes on. I mean, just things that, um, that are intrusive to the privacy of Americans, and, and he believes that as currently constituted, TikTok should not be allowed to operate in the United States, that they need to make some major changes um, and, and, you know, open question whether the Oracle deal does that or not. It's undergoing CFIUS review now, which is the process that uh, takes place where a committee of policymakers sits and, and decides whether, um, whether the amount of foreign influence in an in a, in a economic transaction like this is acceptable or not. Uh, and, and so we'll see where they come out on the deal. I, I guess I would just say that we all should be deeply skeptical of an organization like TikTok whose parent company, ByteDance, has uh, people within the central leadership and senior leadership who have close ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, That that kind of institution ought to be allowed to furnish a technology that operates widely and freely in the United States without without any sort of national security overview or the comfort of knowing that a U.S. company is trying to arbitrate that. Uh, That, to me, is, is deeply troubling. I mentioned in the intro, Lanhee, that you are running uh, a lot of things out of your home right now, including to your office, where you're going to be doing a, uh, a Stanford lecture in a few minutes. So we'll get you get you out of here shortly. Uh, you have kids at home because it's California, the virtual learning. Do your kids TikTok? No, no, they don't. They're, they're not old enough. And even if they were, I, I'd be pretty uh, concerned about it if they did, and 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 probably wouldn't wouldn't want that to happen. Precisely because of the degree to which. Uh, these apps are able to collect information and data on you, even when you're not using them. Uh, just by virtue of them being on your phone, it creates a, a national security challenge. That's what I'm curious about because you, you're a parent to young kids. You also study the effect social media has, and also you're interested in terms of China and the security issue. As we look at the emergence of TikTok, what is the greatest threat? Is it one of, is it one of espionage and surveillance, or is it just one of just the continued dumbing down of America? Well, I, you know, I think there's elements of, of all of those things. I, I do worry most about the amount of personal data and information on American citizens and American uh, you know, people who live in the United States and use the, the TikTok app that's available to, um, to programmers and to uh, folks at, at the company, which, as I noted, uh, TikTok is owned by ByteDance. ByteDance has close relationships with the Chinese Communist Party, as do, you know, if they're not unique in that regard, many um, uh, companies in China have to. It's the price of doing business. 
and I'm worried about that information on Americans being made available and being used to potentially create disinformation campaigns or to manipulate uh, how Americans think about issues that are that are before them. So I worry about that. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, it's we got lots of sources of entertainment. I think that's great. That's one of the great things about where we are now. But if you look at the amount of content on TikTok, how much of it is truly content that you can say, <clears throat> you know, furthers the national dialogue on important issues? I mean, probably not very much. Um, so, you know, that's something that I'm not particularly fond of as well. But, you know, if people want to produce that content, that's up to them. I am more concerned really about the national security implications of having so much data floating around uh, that's accessible to to a foreign power that arguably is in competition to, uh, if not hostile toward what we're trying to do. So, honey, I've been watching uh, the president and Governor Newsom and Joe Biden all kind of uh, get into it over climate change. And I keep waiting for Biden to announce he's going to have a climate change czar uh, in his administration. Do we do we need a technology czar in the federal government? I, you know, I don't know about that because I, you know, I think that if you if you have something like technology that evolves so quickly, um, I, I don't think necessarily what we need is more regulation. I think we need smarter regulation, and we have to figure out how to take all of the different functions. And, and maybe the answer is we do need a coordinated person who watches over all of this. There's so many functions in different agencies across the federal government, the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department. Uh, in the case of contact tracing apps, you've got the Health and Human Services Department. I mean, all sorts of different departments involved in the use and application of technology. There is an Office of Science and Technology Policy already within the White House. Maybe that can play more of a coordinating role. It really hasn't in this administration. I'm, I'm hesitant to say what we need is more bureaucracy, but I do think that we need to be smarter about how all this regulation comes together and what it means for users of technology platforms, but also for the technology platforms themselves. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of blanch when I hear the word czar. I'm old enough to remember the energy czar in Washington, for example. So usually, usually czar is just like the Russian counterparts are kind of designed to fail, if you will. But uh, it just seems to me, it seems to me, Lonnie, there needs to be just a little more streamlining in Washington as to how exactly approach this. You do have Holly in the Senate going after this. You have various agencies, but there just seems to be someone who needs to be in charge of the whole thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I get that point of view. And having a little bit more coordination across government is probably not a bad thing. So not to turn this completely into the Josh Hawley Lonnie Jen podcast, but there's one other aspect of what Senator Hawley is up to. And we've seen this with Tom Cotton uh, in regards to his uh, opinions about China. It would seem, Lonnie, that in some regards, the 2024 race is already on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's never too early to talk about the next presidential campaign, right? I mean, uh, that, that's sort of the, 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 the axiom for those of us who follow politics. Uh, it will be interesting. I mean, this came up in our Hawley, uh, actually it wasn't in the Hawley conversation. It was another conversation I was having this afternoon, but the the idea is you're going to have all these different strains within the Republican Party right. that are going to have to work themselves out, right? One is certainly this question of what the influence of Trump and the Trump family will be. Even if President Trump loses this election, he has a huge following. Members of his family are going to draft off of that. What is that going to look like? The second issue is, did people who served in the Trump administration but have presidential aspirations, I'm looking at you, Nikki Haley, uh, <laughs> How are you able to essentially walk the line between those who supported and liked Trump and those who really didn't like Trump but still consider themselves Republican? Can someone like Nikki Haley, who I think is very able in many ways, has a great resume, right. um, reflects very well in terms of a modern conservative vision, is she going to be able to, to walk that line successfully? And, and, and then, you know, the last possibility is you've got people who were not in the Trump camp and, and haven't been, people like Ben Sass 
who have been more openly skeptical, what role are they going to play? Are they going to play a more dominant role in a post-Trump era? Uh, those are all great questions in my mind. But you've got so many people. I, I think that there is a, uh, a wealth of talent on the Republican side that has presidential, potentially presidential aspirations who I think could be very strong nominees in 2024. It's just a question of how all these different strands work themselves out. Right. Well, Holly interests me a lot here because uh, he is on Tucker Carlson's show a lot. Uh, Tucker, uh-huh. like him, and I don't know how much credence you put on the idea of Tucker running for president, but there is kind of a Tucker Carlson lane because it's a seriously watched show on Fox. Uh, but the other thing that Holly has done here for, quite cleverly, I think, Lon, he is by getting involved in the, in the uh, Section 230 issue, this is kind of the topic of fake news, if you will. The idea that, number one, you can't trust media, be it social media, and secondly, that it's tilted against conservatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's a very um, interesting place to be because it, it it's riding with with the current, if that makes sense. I mean, it's pretty clear that a lot of conservatives out there are skeptical of this already. They're skeptical of of big media. They're skeptical of social media. They're skeptical right. of big tech, and um, the idea of kind of drafting with that. But you know, the thing about Holly and uh, and Tucker Carlson both is that. You know, they actually do it in a pretty smart way. I mean, you listen to them talk about these issues. They understand the issues, but they, they, they understand the minutiae of it, too. They're able to talk about it and function at a level that's more than just punditry. It is, it is an understanding of an, an architecture around how you want to regulate social media and the presence of social media in our lives and what that means. And it's a recognition. You're not going to get rid of it, nor would that be desirable. And so... Uh, within those confines, I think both Tucker Carlson and uh, and Josh Hawley have been remarkably effective at speaking to these issues. Very good. We're going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes, but uh, I can't let you go, given your relationship with the senator, to ask you a question about Mitt Romney. Is he Joe Biden's defense secretary? <laughs> uh, look, I think that... Uh, I know you love it, this question, but... It is. Get- yeah. I mean, it's way premature to talk about you know, what, what might happen in a Biden administration. I mean, the guy's got to win the election first. Right. Uh, my, my, my sense about Romney is that he is very happy doing what he is doing right now, which is being the junior senator from Utah. I know there were a lot of people who questioned, you know, will he be happy doing that? Someone with all his success and experience, particularly as an executive, um, he has really, in my mind, uh, risen to the occasion. He has been a lawmaker. He has been a statesman. He has been a, a uh, someone who's approached the issues carefully and studiously. He has made decisions that I know not all of the people listening to this podcast will agree with, but he has done it on principle. And for that, I am very proud of him. A- and I think that he is someone who I have always thought uh, is someone who speaks from from his heart and what he cares about and thinks about. And I think you're seeing that in action in his time in the Senate. So I, I don't expect him to go anywhere. Let me just put it that way. I think he is more than happy being a senator, and I think he's having the impact he wants to uh, in that chamber. Okay, so you're taking him out of a Biden cabinet, or are you taking him out of the 2024 race? Uh, yeah, no, I think I think uh, he, he will not run for president again. He will not be a candidate for president again. I think he's been pretty clear about that. And I, I, you know, I think, as I said, I think he's pretty happy doing what he's doing and having the impact he's having now. I don't know, late 70s is like the young 50s now. Well, you know, and, and he guy's in shape. I mean, you look at him, he looks terrific. He does not look like like someone who is who is of the age he is. And uh, uh, it's my hope, sincerely, that he has uh, several more decades of public service in him. Okay, so final question, Lonnie. So the missing Hoover video, will we ever see it again on YouTube? Do you think it'll come back magically at some point? Or, or canceled videos like those? Or are they just like canceling something off your laptop where it is permanently deleted? 
Well, I, you know, I don't know that it'll be back. Um, by the way, you can you can watch it. <laughs> you can watch it if you go to the Hoover website if you really yeah. want to see it. Um, I, look, th- this is the point I was making in that tweet the other day. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you do stuff like this, first of all, you create a black market around the video, so more people actually want to go see it. But second of all, you, you you've just exposed your own agenda to the rest of the world. And so, you know, can you backtrack from that? Can you say, no, we weren't really serious about, I mean, I I don't know, who knows if it's coming back or not. But I I would just say going forward, if they're going to be selective about the videos they're taking down, they need to look just as carefully at WHO videos that talk about how mask wearing is not effective. I mean, that to me is just as damaging, if not more damaging than remotely close to anything that was said in the Scott Atlas video. So, you know, they need to take a good hard look at themselves and what they're doing. You and I did a Hoover policy briefing a few months ago where we talked about uh, WHO. I'm surprised that hasn't been yanked by now. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, again, it's a lack of understanding of what the algorithm is and it's a lack of understanding of what the factors are that drive the decisions these guys are making. Okay. So Lon He Chen is alive and kicking on YouTube is what you're telling me. Well, I, let's put it this way. I, I, I don't necessarily expect that uh, we're going to hear a ton about videos from the Biden campaign or Biden campaign advisors being removed from, from YouTube, uh, whereas I don't have great confidence that there won't be another incident like this very soon for, for someone who, who speaks to a different agenda. Okay. Well, Lonnie, you've got kids to go shepherd. You've got a class to teach at the top of your house. I'm going to let you go, my friend. But hey, enjoy the conversation and uh, keep up the great work. And uh, the capital conversations are just uh, terrific. I'm glad you're doing them. Thanks, Bill, as always. Okay, you've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. In this podcast, the rather complicated situation involving YouTube, the Hoover Institution of Video, Social Media, Josh Hawley, and so on and so forth. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. We're not the only Hoover Institution podcast, by the way. There's Econ Talk, the classicist with the great Victor Davis Hanson, libertarian the Pacific Century, uh, which Lon He Chen was on not too long ago, talking about China with his colleagues, uh, Michael Oslin and John Yu. A uh, whole bunch of good stuff to listen to. And also, uh, again, check out Lonnie's Capital Conversation with Josh Harley, and you'll find him doing others. I think he did one with Marco Rubio recently. It's great viewing. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Lon He Chen and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dr. Lon He Chen, as I mentioned, is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Lon He Chen. That is spelled L-A-N-H-E-E-C-H-E-N at Lon He Chen. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.